Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting capitalallocatorspodcast.com. This episode is dedicated to my late friend and classmate, Jennifer Goodman Lynn, and her husband, Dave Lynn, who together founded Cycle for Survival. Ten years ago, in the basement of an Equinox gym in Manhattan, a few friends gathered around Jen to raise some money in support of her battle with a rare cancer. Since then, Cycle for Survival has become the fastest-growing nonprofit athletic event in the United States and has raised $140 million dollars. 100% of which goes to fund rare cancer research at Memorial Sloan Kettering Hospital. The event itself is a spinning class, the highest energy, most inspirational, and emotional spin class you could ever attend. I've been riding in the events for 10 years and can't recommend the experience highly enough. Next year's signups have just begun. Visit cycleforsurvival.org to sign up for this season's rides and join the battle to fight rare cancers. My guest on today's show is Jason Klein, the Senior Vice President and Chief Investment Officer at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, where he oversees the hospital's $4.5 billion in long-term investment assets. He spent the last decade and a half overseeing endowment pools, nine at Memorial Sloan Kettering and five at the Museum of Modern Art. Jason got his start in the investment business learning the tools of private equity and had training as an investment banker, management consultant, and lawyer. Our conversation starts with the distinctive features that drive the investment structure for Memorial Sloan Kettering and flows through core beliefs, asset allocation frameworks, and manager selection. Aspects of his due diligence process, including 30 questions and his pre-mortem analysis, 
offer new arrows in an allocator's quiver to those from previous conversations. Jason's curiosity and eagerness to ask questions provides a terrific structure for applying capital allocation to a distinctive pool of capital. Please enjoy my conversation with Jason Klein. Jason, thanks for joining me. Great to be here. Thanks. Always good speaking with you. This will be fun. I have some some deep affinity to Memorial Sloan Kettering. I've uh, been involved with Cycle for Survival for a long time. So shout out anyone listening involved with Cycle. And I loved seeing that, I guess, every Monday in your staff meetings, you have what you call a memorial moment. Yes, and would love you to share what that is and maybe an example this week. Sure. So so for us, being part of the mission is so critical to what we do. We are servicing the Memorial Sloan Kettering purpose, which is to fund unparalleled patient care, research, and education. And for us, what we do is really contributes to that. The challenge, of course, is how do we bring that mission and make it tangible to investors? Because ultimately, we're just investors. So every Monday morning, our team gets together, organizational meeting, full team, and we'll begin with what we call memorial moments. There, what we're doing is we're either sharing some sort of research that's going on at the organization, some sort of ad that memorial is using, some sort of accomplishment that one of our scientists, and we'll begin that with the team to sort of make that mission tangible and bring it in as inspiration for what we do. An example this past week was sharing one of the new ads that Memorial is using. There's, uh, in the last few years, it seems that everybody has become a bit of a cancer specialist in the world. Um, <laughs> and that's creating confusion in the marketplace because we live in a world where outcomes matters and Memorial really does have exceptional outcomes. So sharing the great work that our colleagues over on the marketing and the advertising side is doing with our investment organization and really bringing that mission home to each of us to kick off the week uh, really gets us started, ready to go. That's fantastic. You know, as you're saying this, I don't think naturally about a cancer center as a business. And yet, as you're saying, this sounds like competition and advertising and all the things that we normally expect to hear about in for-profit businesses. Yeah, absolutely. And it's perhaps a sign of the times. All right, let's circle back a little bit and talk about you and how you came to be in the seat you've now occupied for a decade, I guess. I joined Memorial nine years ago from the Museum of Modern Art. And I suppose the way that I got to this field of multi-asset class investing was I had been in private equity and liked being a principal. Really enjoyed that. We were doing a specific kind of deal and we were doing that whether or not that opportunity set was in, was, was, was in favor of the day. One day I realized I like investing. I'd like to do multi-asset class investing. Saw an ad on the Wharton MBA page saying New York City based cultural institution seeks investor for its multi-asset class portfolio. And I thought, this is great, even if I don't know who that organization is. <laughs> so so with encouragement from my wife, I sent in for it to something to the effect of recruiter at info. It was all anonymized. Uh, turned out to be the Museum of Modern Art. 13 interviews later, had the position, really enjoyed it. They are a terrific organization, forward-thinking, progressive, not only in terms of art, but also in terms of the investment side. Terrific committee, terrific chief operating officer that I reported to. Had a really good experience. Grew that, got a call from Memorial Sloan Kettering, and decided to become the first CIO there. Larger portfolio, a little bit more complex, uh, great mission as well something that really resonated with me on the mission side and decided to to create that opportunity. So for me, how did I get here? It was really about wanting to be on the principal side, wanting to be on a multi-class, uh, multi-asset class uh, opportunity, and really wanting to be part of a mission that would inspire me on a, on a durable basis. Curious how you learned this business, because if you start in private equity, there's a, a particular skill set, right, of finding a deal and transacting a deal and monitoring a deal, working with a company, which is quite different from the toolkit of most, say, capital allocators, or asset allocators. So how did you learn when you first got to the Museum of Modern? So fortunately, one of the benefits of having spent a bunch of years in private equity is, as you mentioned, you get that skill set. It's a bottoms up skill set. It's a granular skill set. It's a spirit of roll up your sleeves, learn on your own, be creative and identify resources. And that all came into play. So at the Museum of Modern Art, it was, here's your portfolio. There was sort of no consultant involved. There was nothing in the way of, of a team 
there, I was, you know, it was, it was a team of one. It was really dig in and it was really learn. And it was really take as many manager meetings as I could. It was really try to network and try to learn from as many people as I could. Committee members were supportive. I developed peers and I developed colleagues, but it was really learning through doing, and it was really trying to set out organizationally, what are the core principles? So at that point, I had lived in private equity. That also gave me a framework for understanding all private strategies. Having lived inside of private equity, how do I branch out? When it comes to public equity, well, that's really sort of similar dynamics and drivers as private equity, but different structures. When it comes to credit uh, investments. I'd done that earlier in my career so I could extend there. When it comes to real estate, okay, so there, for example, I had the framework and the structures of private asset classes and private equity, but it was a matter of taking meetings, reading up, not being afraid to make mistakes and made my fair share of those, um, but learning and being interested in learning and trying to learn from each person that I met with and figuring it out along the way. And so after that period of time, you come over to Memorial, what did you come to believe about investing? So I remember in one of my interviews for MoMA, the, the trustee had, had ended the interview, nice long, long interview, had ended the interview by saying, Jason, one thing, don't lose money. And I looked at him <laughs> and then he, he zeroed in. He said, don't lose money. In terms of investing beliefs, I think first, Focusing on goals, one, research matters, right? So the investment world uh, is a uh, is a series of smaller worlds that are quirky, that are funky, that are differently understood, that are driven by some set of underlying fundamentals in the longer term, but many sets of technicals in the near term. Taking the time or finding and partnering with people that can take the time to research and live in those niches can really make a big difference. Second, investing serves a purpose. The investing serves a purpose of the investor. One of the nice things that we have uh, at Memorial and had this at, at, um, at MoMA as well, of course, is we have only one client. That client has many voices and many constituencies. There's management, there's boards, but there's really only one client. So taking the time to figuring out what's the mission that we're serving, what's the organization that we're serving, what's the real risk appetite? And by risk there, I don't really mean standard deviation or volatility, but I mean, what's the sensitivity to loss? What's the sensitivity to accessing their capital? How does their capital figure into their plans and their aspirations? And understanding how we can best optimize the investment portfolio to achieve those goals. Sometimes that entails losing money, it turns out, but achieving those goals in the best way that you can and understand putting together a single investment plan that is optimized for those goals, that's a second key fundamental belief. And where you sit today at Memorial, what are those goals? So those goals are funding unparalleled patient care, cost-effective patient care, research, and education. Those are long-term goals. So what we're trying to do is deliver a consistent and attractive set of returns to the organization that they can rely on for spending. So on the investing side, it's, the, uh, it's a consistency of return because of the reliability that the organization has on that spending during that intermediate time which is different than it was, or it might be at, at a university where you have a, a truly long-term or a truly infinite investment horizon. We're much more dependent and much more sensitive to, to liquidity and even interim liquidity than, than, than many peer organizations are. So how does that, we take those goals and let's bring them kind of to the investment realm. Sure. You have a pool of capital that you're managing focused on achieving these goals, super important goals of creating dollars for, for research and development and for spending on cancer cures. How do you do it? So in terms of setting risk limits for the portfolio, we think of two different things. One, different types of asset classes, identifying discrete sets of return drivers. But then second, we also think about different sets of liquidity and risk parameters. So for example, when it comes to equity returns, what we'll do there is identify different kinds of 
drivers of equity returns, be it either the United geographically based, either the United States or developed markets or emerging, but also layering on top of that, how much of an excess return premium can we get from private returns? Identifying for Memorial what the liquidity limits are likely to be and needed over the course of the years, modeling those out, planning in advance, and really optimizing and maximizing what we think we can get for by way of, say, a liquidity return, and then comparing that on a bottoms-up basis for, say, a venture capital return versus, say, a real estate return within the within the risk parameter of illiquidity. So let's get down to brass tacks on yeah. that. Asset allocation framework. Yes. What does the pie look like? Just so, quick numbers. So, so quick numbers. The pie looks like using the conventional asset allocation framework that we have. Global equity is roughly 30%. Hedged equities and uncorrelated strategies, roughly 30%. Uh, private equity strategies, all in, roughly 20%. Real asset-based strategies, roughly 10%. And fixed income and cash, long-term average, roughly 10%. Okay. And, and then let's touch a little bit on this sort of liquidity and risk thinking and framework. So just taking the example that you mentioned, you have a venture capital investment you have a public equity investment. Yes. Um, okay, you, you have them, you've allocated them to managers. W what do you do to <laughs> compare these things and, and uh, what does that actually look like? So we spent a fair amount of time thinking about this in terms of what should we be paid for our, for our unit, uh, per unit of illiquidity. And we've examined historical data, we've examined by asset class, we've examined by economic and market regime, and then we came up with a simple heuristic, uh, basically 100 basis points per year. We think that we should be getting uh, in terms of an illiquidity premium to lock up our money. So in a simple case, if we had a public equity or you chose venture capital, if we have a uh, private venture capital fund and we have a public manager that invests in the same underlying risks of those venture capital companies but for stage of development. So if we're talking technology or if we're talking healthcare, then for the the difference in liquidity, what we'd like to see is our way to a premium of 100 basis points per year for, for each year's worth of liquidity. Um, and that paradigm extends out to other asset classes as well. How do you quantify 100 basis points? I'm just thinking in my head, oh, we've got a... a technology stock picker. By the way, that might be next to a technology hedge fund manager. And then we have an early stage venture capital fund that isn't one of the big brand names that everyone wants access to, but looks interesting. 100 basis points? Uh, 100 basis points. This is why it's a heuristic, right? So this is meant to be directional. <laughs> this is meant to be informative. This is not meant to be prescriptive. And it turns out that's quite a, that, that's, that's quite a big premium to achieve. There are some ways that you can actually look at it and say with some with, with some high degree of conviction. An example might be a fund manager that has two different share classes. Same strategy, one-year lockup versus three-year lockup. A fund might offer you a fee break for a you know for going with a longer lockup. Well, if you have, say, a management fee that goes down by 25 basis points per, per, for those two different share classes, that's, that's easy and concrete and something you'd count on. There might be a multi-year fee crystallization or carry determination that it turns out is actually worth something. There might be a lower carry rate. Again, that might be worth something because of the compounding, because of the, the variability within the carry uh, generation. So there are structural elements that generate gains. Um, but beyond that, then it gets to be a little bit less concrete where you're looking at how is a man, what is a manager's research engine and what are they bringing to the table that the public firm is not? Are they operationally adding value through helping managements with either with their formation or with their strategic business plans? Are they providing capital for roll-up opportunities? Are they optimizing their, uh, taking advantage of their, of their sell cycle in, in terms of you know, harvesting businesses or, or harvesting opportunities in, in, in real asset strategies. What are they doing on the investment side that should lead to, that we believe will lead to a difference in return? Ideally, 
you'd have a manager that has been doing the same strategy for a long period of time. So we should be able to see our way mapping a manager's research engine to the returns that they actually have produced. And then if you have that benefit of the track record, you can say, okay, how much of this has been alpha or excess return? How much of this has been beta? And what are their sources of the, what are the drivers of each of those different return streams? And you should be able to link it back to an ex-ante understanding of the manager's research engine at the start. So we, there's a couple of different legs then. You've got the terms. Say, hey, if you can negotiate a little bit better, you can understand that. You have the operational improvements, deal dynamics separate, but the skill of that manager. And the one thing you didn't really mention is entry price. Sure. Right. And and so is that also an important consideration You say, well, the private market valuations are cheaper than the public market or vice versa? And how do you factor that into the equation? Yeah, for sure. Price matters, right? So so. It, at heart, I'm a value investor, so so certainly price matters a lot. And with any active strategy, with, with any security selection, or certainly any even any private strategy, I mentioned the harvesting or the optimization on the sell, but certainly that links back to the the opportunity, uh, the valuation on on the buy. You mentioned comparing managers across different strategies, and one of the things that we've developed is a manager selection paradigm that that helps us in these trade-offs or helps us uh, evaluate and price figures in it's the latest part of the of the paradigm that we've added for us when we're looking at managers what we're looking for is a couple of different things one what does a manager believe what is their core investment philosophy what's their worldview second what's their investment strategy how are they taking that worldview and making it into an ex- economically exploitable game plan. Third is process. What are they actually doing? How are they finding investments? How are they diligencing investments? How are they assembling a portfolio? How are they managing risk? Those are the three components. We think of them as three legs of a stool, uh, sort of like a bar stool. Uh, They hold up the sliver that you see in a profile, uh, the seat, which is the part that you touch, the part that you consume over the course of time, that's returns. So without a sound philosophy and a strategy and a process, uh, the returns you know aren't well supported. We need to analyze those returns and we need to understand what's upholding them. That's the stool. The stool rests on a foundation, foundation people. People are the foundation to the investment business in our view. People are uh, imperfect. Uh, people are quirky. And one of the benefits of a three-legged bar stool as opposed to a four-legged bar stool is that a three-legged bar stool is actually more robust on an uncertain, on a slightly uh, uncertain foundation. We're looking for people to provide that foundation and really understand why they're going to be good risk takers for us and good stewards of our capital. But the issue of price figures in where we've recognized that bar stool sits inside of an environment where that environment is a market environment. That market environment is is accounted for by, amongst other things, entry prices that you mentioned. And market opportunities wax and wane in terms of their attractiveness. And we track market multiples and we track valuations and we track conditions, not chasing flavor du jour. Uh, but we do look at the the attractiveness of valuations on the entry prices for the market strategies. Um, Ideally, we want to find a great management team that either one has access to many different market environments or two is sitting inside of a good opportunity set uh, at the time. Yeah. What are the characteristics in the people that you've tended to invest with that differentiate from the characteristics of the people you've tended to turn away? It's a great question. I would say an internal competitiveness or competitiveness that is internally oriented. I'd like to find people that are driven, but driven to compete mostly with themselves to do as best as they can. As a result, hopefully that will propel them if they're skilled to be better than others as well. But the primary source of that drive, the primary source of that ambition is hopefully internally oriented. That will enable them to be good partners. That will enable them to be good collaborators. That'll enable them to have a good open dialogue with us. That'll enable us to be supportive of them, which is what we're always trying to do. Tell me a story about someone, to name the name, where you heard something 
that told you, oh, they've got that internal competitiveness? Sure. We it won't name names, but we've got a manager. Uh, e- each time I, I meet with the manager, there are examples of what they're doing differently than last time. Sometimes those are big. Many times, most times, they're small but they're specific and they're concrete. Here's how I looked at my buys over the last six months. Here's what I found. This is what I'm doing differently. Here's what I found in my portfolio. Here's a new information source that I came across, a new website, a new journal, a new channel of information. I'm incorporating that now I didn't before. Here's what I thought was the case two years ago. I thought that valuations were important. Now I realize that valuations are important, but you have to segment by market regime because we're in a different environment and I've thought about it differently. So what I'm looking for and what I do find in the example is are are people that are doing things differently now than they had in the past. It's a self-learning process. It's a roll up your sleeves. It's a self-critical, but it's a fact-friendly process. Not being afraid to ask the question, not being afraid of the answer, not being flex, not inflexible enough to change what you're doing. All right. So let's circle back. Internal competitiveness was kind of the first one. I'd say the second is probably an intellectual curiosity. Um, the world's a complex, interrelated place. And when I find that when I find myself being impressed with managers that are open to taking information in from different sources in, in a genuinely curious sort of way. And again, that helps towards being fact-friendly. That helps towards being unemotional about what it is you might find and open to accepting that in a, in a process of continuous improvement. Any other big ones? I think the third one would be a what I would sort of describe as productivity, meaning uh, an interest in being productive. We find that there are man- there are people in this world, there are managers in this world that have, by any measure of success, certainly any measure of economic success, amassed a bank account that would enable them to do anything they wanted or nothing at all, and yet they still come to the office five days a week. Sorry, they're 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 coming to their office seven days a week wherever they are because the office follows them these days. Um, me- meaning, no matter where they are, so the, the, we're in a world where if you've got uh, access, if you've got a smartphone with you, you're 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 reading, you're doing, you're productive, and there are people that that are that have that passion with them, and it's a little bit different than the competitiveness. It's a passion towards productivity. It's a passion towards production, production of investment returns, production of contribution. It's a passion where they are really driven to produce you know, rather than perhaps to consume. So when you layer in these special types of people, a lot of those characteristics don't change much. They can, right? People can evolve. They can make all their money and, and lose the curiosity and the drive they had, but For many of these people, they're innate characteristics. So you layer in a certain type of person and in a lot of strategies that might not be cyclical, say, okay, they're pursuing a certain sandbox. How often do you change your mind? In in practice, hopefully, if we're finding, if we're aligning ourselves with the right managers and we are aligning ourselves with managers that are pursuing flexible mandates come up with a lot of acronyms. One of his FMMs, flexible mandate managers, which is sort of the ideal for us. If we spend the time to research, find the people, understand their worldview, understand their philosophy, understand their risk taking. If we are aligning ourselves with them, then we can hopefully stay with them forever. And, and we'll never, we'll never sort of turn them over at the other end of the spectrum is we might have a manager that is pursuing a interesting, niche market opportunity that we expect to be around for, say, I don't know, two to four years that is valuation-driven, and a manager that might have a fantastic ability to attack or invest, you know, to attack that market-driven opportunity, but maybe that manager doesn't want to invest forever. Maybe they have motivations that are different, but we can align with them for the duration of what we think is a time-specific opportunity. We're willing to do that too. That'll have a higher turnover to it. What's your normal 
process for identifying these managers? I just asked my team. They, they, <laughs> they come up with great ideas. I asked my team or so they said so they're, they're, they're great. And I asked them, we benefit from having a number of different channels of information. First, I do have a great investment team. We all have networks. We're speaking with other people. One of the big benefits about investing on behalf of the cancer center is we're not in competition with anybody. We're here to help patients happy to be collaborative in a trusted sense, never break a confidence, but but happy to be collaborative with people and, and share share ideas and, and compare notes, so to speak. So our team is one source. Our committee is, a, is another great source. We've got a terrific investment committee, each of whom has many angles through which they interact with financial markets and other institutions. So they're a great source of ideas. And then the third, of course, is, and this is a benefit of, of being in endowment with, with a great organizational name, we we attract the because of our size and because of our, our our brand name, as it were. We attract unsolicited interest from a number of different managers on, and and third party marketers. So I say those are the big channels of ideas. But our bias is to because our bias is to be patient and to be long term oriented. Again, coming back to the turnover question, in, in practice, the answer is is that we're not turning over the portfolio all that frequently at all. So we have the benefit of being uh, of having a fully invested portfolio uh, without a whole lot of turnover. We're really focusing everything that we're doing is in pursuit of our enormously complex two step game plan. Step one: make one accretive investment. Step two: repeat. It comes down to those five words. Yeah. If we can, if we can do that, and we can do that a little bit at a time, and a little bit at a time, and a little bit at a time, we'll generate great returns. So, what does the homework or the due diligence process look like inside your organization? Once you've met a manager, you like them, you've had a series of meetings, you've asked the questions you want to ask. What happens behind the scenes from that moment until when you're funding or through the committee? Sure. So what we're trying to do, just to bring a little you know, depth to the points that you meant, we're trying to understand everything we can about the manager. So we're trying to understand qualitatively what it is they're trying to do, where they think they are getting their returns from. And then we're going to try to corroborate all of that through independent sources. We're going to try to corroborate that by speaking to as many people as we can inside their organization, outside their organization. References, references that are provided on list. More importantly, references that we source on our own off list. We're going to try to investigate that quantitatively. Look at the track record, slice and dice it a lot of different ways and figure out, does it make sense? Is it consistent with the qualitative understanding? We'll do background checks. We'll do reference checks. We'll try to make sure, are we understanding the people that we are aligning with because we are going to trust them. We are going to give them our capital. We will be as informed as we can be, but respectfully informed. We don't want to get in anybody's way and we don't want to hinder them from making you know, from spending their highest and best use of their time. So we're going to try to use independent sources of information, including quantitatively to truly try to confirm that understanding. And then we're trying to, as a team, come together and make sure we really understand this opportunity. Are we making sure we have two team-wide discussions that help us in the, in the behind the scenes? One is at one of the earlier stages of the uh, gestation period, as it were, something that we call 30 questions. We've got a group of 30 questions that we put together. Again, it's meant to be informative. It's not meant to be prescriptive, but we're looking at, do we understand the deal mechanic, the investment mechanics? Do we understand the investment thesis? Do we understand the alternatives? Do we understand any behavioral biases that might exist or might not exist? Are we undue, are we under any undue pressures or timing to rush to make a decision? How sure are we that we're having the opportunity to do all of the research that we have? If we had only three opportunities to make an investment over the course of the next year, would this be one of them? If we wanted to change our mind later, could we? Under what macro environments do we expect this investment to succeed or not? So one of what we call 30 questions is something is a group-wide endeavor that we undertake together at the earlier stages. And the function there is to make sure, are we really focusing on what we know, what we don't know, and that guides the rest of our research. Towards the later parts of our investment process, one of the things that we'll do is something that we call storyboarding, which is to make sure now that we have sort of internally as a team committed to this investment opportunity, 
are we really understanding it well where we can crisply assess its strengths and its weaknesses and communicate it up to the committee for what we do. Then I'd say the last one that we do, and this is the third part of the group uh, dynamic that we that we do together, is after uh, in the days after we fund an investment, we get together for what what's called a pre-mortem. We didn't uh, just, we didn't invent this, of course, but once you're committed to to a project, it's fast forwarding hypothetically to some future point, assuming that the that the project has failed, and then hypothetically retroactively looking at why might that have been the case. And and you could say where well, that is in some ways part of a scenario planning, forward-looking part of, of a case planning or a scenario planning or a stress testing part of an analysis, all of which we do. What we have found is that creative thinking, once you're fully committed, lets you take a step back and identify things that from a different perspective, maybe you didn't do identify earlier on. And what it also does is it gives you a sort of checklist of things to monitor with that manager as the relation develops over the course of time. As you've done those premortems over time, how accurate have you been in the sense that when something happened, when you exited, how often did you flag it ahead of time or how long was it something you couldn't possibly have foreseen? And what we've learned is that no matter how creative you are, people will always find new ways to surprise. But but it has uh, it actually has been helpful because what it has enabled us to do is to is to apply learnings from one situation to another. We recently had an opportunity to apply this where where we were looking at a venture capital manager and we found ourselves identifying a risk that came out of an experience in a private energy situation that clearly it was orthogonal to the the venture capital situation. But uh, intellectually, we were able to take a learning from one situation and apply it in another that in a way that we otherwise would not have. And had escaped our forward-looking thinking during the underwriting of that venture capital opportunity set. And do you, as you do that over time, do you tend to move the pre-mortem earlier so that you get to the point where it's before you're ready to make the recommendation? So it's funny that you mentioned that. This is a bit of a challenge because the whole spirit of the pre-mortem is that you are committed to the project and you are therefore sort of in bed with it as it were. So we do find ourselves pre-thinking ourselves, uh, and those conversations as a result have gotten a little bit more concise because we're trying to preserve the spirit of, of that intellectual exercise. But for sure, we're, we're planning ahead in this sort of infinitely recursive loop and learning to sort of think ahead and, gee, what it is, how can we make a better decision and what can we learn from bringing a new perspective to what it is we're doing? How do you involve your committee or do you involve your committee on the manager by manager basis? For sure. Everything that we do is we make recommendations to our committee and we involve them. They're each a phenomenally informed, successful person there. It's a collection of page one of the journal kind of names, and we're fortunate to have them. They're also busy. So the challenge to us is how do we do so efficiently and respectively? So what we try to do is we try to discuss strategy with them in advance and get their strategic guidance. We put together a strategy dashboard each year. We focus our conversations with them on asset allocation and market environments. We have, we distribute written materials on our managers at two different points in advance of seeking approval so that we're incorporating feedback from them early in the process in a time efficient way. Hey, Jason, I like this market opportunity, but have you thought about these other two managers instead of this manager? If we're pulling together that kind of a group and we're discussing a one or 2% position, it's just not the best highest impact that we can bring their experience to bear on behalf of Memorial Sloan Kettering. So we do access them. They are a competitive advantage for a competitive edge and a competitive advantage for us, but we need to do so in a way that is respectful of their time and gets them focusing on risk and opportunity and not on minutia. So let's, let's talk a little bit about rolling up the managers into asset allocation. So you talked about that asset allocation framework. And one of the things that keeps coming up in the conversations I've been having is, well, is asset allocation going forward the next 10 years, will it be as effective as it was in the last 10 based on where valuations are across the spectrum in assets? And how have you changed how you think about that? 
that framework of, of asset allocation and whether kind of having the buckets is the right way to go. And if you have, what other tools can you bring to your disposal to make you think through this challenge? So we have, and we have in, in a couple of different ways. First, the on the view of asset allocation, for us, it's, it, it's a guide. It's a help having that vocabulary and having that framework is helpful in setting expectations and helping communicate between our committee and our staff. So that's very helpful. You also need asset classes that matter. And this was one of the great learnings coming out of the great financial crisis where it turns out that in the conventional wisdom and the conventional asset classes that we have, they're, they're not really asset classes per se. Equity versus private equity, we spoke about, you know, earlier in this conversation. They're not different asset classes. They're both equities. They, they might have different characteristics and they might have different levels of risk, leverage or illiquidity, but they're not different asset classes per se. So a bunch of years ago, we developed a, an alternative framework for looking at this, which we, thought what was needed in the world was something that was a little bit more straightforward uh, and less convoluted than the classes that we had, and something that would be helpful directionally without having the false precision of being a prescription. So we've called it, and we, we called it a straightforward as a group exercise. It's part of an ongoing exercise. We use the acronym STAGE. With that, what we've done is we've identified primary asset types, equities, rates, currencies, and then which sliced each of them slightly into two categories. Because what that does is it enables us to re-slice and dice our portfolio on a bottoms-up basis to figure out what are the core drivers that we have, how do those correlate with each other, and what kind of liquidity do we have with those. Again, it's an exercise. It's meant to be informative. What I do find, to your point, around whether asset classes are helpful or not, is that in the last few years, in part because of the monetary policy that we've had that has really brought correlations higher across asset classes as as people have been pushed out and out and out in a low interest rate world onto that risk-taking environment generally, uh, that the meaningful, actionable insights across asset classes has broken down in the last few years as, as opposed to previously. So what we have found ourselves doing is looking within asset classes and the complexion of each asset class, coming back to the point around does price matter? For sure, price matters a lot. We, so we find ourselves looking more about the complexion of each asset class rather than the amount of, or in addition to the amount of each asset class. But I should also say that while we're on the tub, subject of, of asset allocation, all, all of this is sort of, in, in some ways, academic and governance oriented, because when it comes to populating our portfolio, it's strictly bottoms up mm. um, and, and managers are going to matter. I mentioned earlier in the conversation, our focus on flexible mandate managers. Really what we're interested in is nimbleness of capital. What we're interested in is managers that can make those real time or more real time trade-offs across asset classes and in a much more nimble format than we're ever going to be able to do. So finding that flexibility, even for example, within equities, we don't have a category called global equities, but for sure we have global equity managers. Managers that have the opportunity to flex around the world, go from US to emerging markets if they want, find those opportunities, populate bottoms up, they're populating bottoms up, we're populating bottoms up. So the asset allocation part of the equation is very important from a framework, very important from a governance, lets our committee know in advance what they can expect and lets them provide guidance for us as well. And in some ways, I think of it as a multi-lane highway, where if you are charged with getting cars from city A to city B and you've got a five-lane highway, most five-lane highways have those little white dashed lines where you could have the left lanes go really fast and the right lanes perhaps not so much. You could have the same amount of runway, roadway, and you could just eliminate all of the white lines um, and have pure flexibility. On average, you wouldn't really know where the cars would be and the average speed might be a little bit slower and there might be a little bit more in the way of accidents. Perhaps yes, perhaps no, depends upon the skills of the drivers. But for sure, what you wouldn't have is the demarcated lines or lanes of what to expect. I think having those asset classes 
provides that expectation and provides a framework for discussion, populating bottoms up focuses on skill and focuses on people. So in the particular categories that allow a broader remit, so you, you could mention a global equity manager as opposed to a U.S. small cap value manager, does that lend itself to to seeking out somewhat larger managers that have broader capabilities and then can be flexible across those capabilities? Not necessarily. You know, it depends on the strategy. The reason why it's 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 not necessarily is because the opportunity set as AUM rises, the opportunity set tends to fall. So as you gravitate towards larger managers, that larger capital base acts as a constraint on the opportunity set itself. So there's a sweet spot that sweet spot might be measured in a small billions or a high hundreds of millions of dollars of AUM size, but it's not, there is a sweet spot that kicks in above some critical mass where it's the small manager and below some too much of a critical mass where it acts as a self-existing constraint. Yeah, I'm trying to envision you're sitting at your desk and you have your portfolio sheet in front of you with a certain number of line items and managers and some of those probably fit the description you said of flexible, and some of them probably do something really, really well. What's what's the balance roughly in, in either numbers or percentages of that you say, well, that's just a best athlete in what they do, and we're really allowing them flexibility, versus, well, that's someone who's incredible at one thing, and that's a great opportunity set for as far as the eye can see. Probably hard to put a number uh, on it in that way, but I'd say that probably a third of the managers have a very meaningful degree of genuine flexibility across many different asset classes. I'd say another third of the managers have meaningful flexibility within their asset classes. So for example, global equities, a global equity manager might fall into that second category, which for us is not as much flexibility. They can't go into say, you know, credits, but they do have more flexibility than your traditional you know, US equity manager would have. That last third would be managers that are well-defined within their opportunity set, but are so deep in their opportunity sets that we think that that return, that, you know, it is worth having a constrained opportunity set for the depth of, of research that they're, that they're bringing to it. And that first third. So I'm just thinking of who has those flexible mandates. You think about global macro managers, you think about maybe multi-strategy hedge funds. You do. Is there anything I'm missing? Is there a bucket of types of managers that sort of a colloquial way of describing them that would fit into that third as well? No, it's, it's hedge fund structures and perhaps, you know, those the global equity managers that have a, a fair amount of flexibility as well. But you're, you're right on that. What are you most concerned about in the capital markets these days? Mispricing of capital. The, as in too high? Or? As in the artificially or engineered low interest rates has pushed enough capital out onto the spectrum where at this point valuations appear really high. So if you look at all of the traditional valuation metrics, uh, Cape Schiller, stock market to GDP, Tobin's Q, those, a lot, almost all of those metrics are top decile type figures at this moment. Is there a chance that those could continue forever because we're in a permanently low interest rate regime? It's possible. It's also possible that cycles don't last forever and that at some point interest rates will reset. So I think the mispricing of capital right now is the big concern. All right, Jason, let's turn to some closing questions. You know, I, I know you've been listening to some of these podcasts, yes. and I know there's some questions you might want to answer, but I decided to change up some of the questions to keep you on your toes a little bit. So we'll start with a common one. What was your favorite sports moment, either as a participant or a fan? As a fan, I'd say it was a few months ago uh, watching three of my four kids successfully test for black belt in Taekwondo. Nice. Um, our, our fourth is a few years and a couple of belts behind, but watching them successfully go up against higher order black belts as a parent was a little bit intimidating, <laughs> but they held their own. They held their own and watching them develop and watching that persistence and, and watching that tenacity over the years has been a terrific sports moment for me. That's fantastic. You're going to have to have the kids listen to the podcast episode with Chatri, who runs the, the basically the UFC of Asia. It was pretty good. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? 
focusing on education. I remember the emphasis always on making the most of your education. So it was not only the quality of the education, but also the amount of the education. I think that infused me with an intellectual curiosity and a learning. So that has led to, uh, for myself, two graduate degrees. So, uh, you know, some people run marathons. I sort of collect extraneous degrees. And as a practitioner, really focusing on how can I learn? Where can I learn? How can I improve myself? I'd say that really comes from them. What recent piece of information did you read or see in this video social media world that made a memorable impact on you? The sharing of investment ideas and granularity in terms of the sort of informal or sort of quasi-professional or sort of self-made analysts. So you look at the kind of information that people are sharing on Stock Guru or Seeking Alpha, and you realize that a lot of the people that are sharing that information, or on Quora, for example, you realize that a lot of the people that are sharing information are not full-time daytime professionals. And yet they've got an edge, they've got an insight. So when we are talking to full-time professionals, having that bit of information or having somebody understanding the quality of insight that a non-professional can bring and then using that to push, probe, and challenge for a professional makes a difference. Yeah, really cool. What's your favorite book? Favorite book all time. I'd love to say that, that it's The Intelligent Investor, um, <laughs> but, um, but, but really it's Green Eggs and Ham, Dr. Seuss. The Sam I Am character, 16 times in a row, asks, pushes, probes, smiles, approaches the same issue with a fresh enthusiasm each time unencumbered by the failures before, doesn't give up, and succeeds in the end. Well, you've had four times experience being a parent, so I, <laughs> I, I, we both understand what that's like. When was the last time you cried? Not really sure offhand. I tend to internalize things. I tend to focus on control, controlling emotions, and try to really focus on breathing and staying in the moment and trying to understand with a perspective that is both inside and outside to, to really focus on that and trying to keep things uh, in perspective. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your life? Change is harder the longer you wait. The status quo is comforting in a lot of ways. And there might be an opportunity where, hey, maybe I'll make this change. Maybe it's a portfolio manager. Maybe it's something else in, in a personal life or maybe it's you know, something else professionally. But you know, there's the hope that, gee, if I just wait it out, I could either, one, the problem will go away or, or two, maybe things will develop. And it's, again, being a little bit of an optimist where maybe things will resolve more favorably even though you sort of know that the right thing to do is to make the change, it turns out that making change early is easier than, than making change late. All right, last question. It is your waning days. You are, you know, 100 years old, sitting in your rocking chair. Cancer's been cured, so you're not working anymore. What advice would you give yourself today? Well, even if cancer is cured, I'd hope to be productively working somewhere. <laughs> uh, the um, what, what advice would I give? It would be breathe, do good, proceed. I think those four words, if I could try to give that advice of be in the moment, try to do some good, even if it's not on point, and then continue on. Terrific. Jason, thank you so much. Thanks, Ed. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you've liked what you've heard, please write a review on iTunes or Google Play to help others find out about the show. Have a good one and see you next time.